This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Thea is pursuing her main and primary role of vacationing, but fear not, Lucy Dallas is here. Arts maven, digital guru, the heady combination of northern pluck and continental chic. Is that, better? Is, that, is that better than that normal? That is my favourite one so intro far. ever. Because normally I, you just say it's not true. Well, it's normally not true what no. you say, but I'll take all of those. Do you like the, word, do like the nice. word maven? I do. I'm not, is it completely complimentary? I think so. <laughs> okay. I think it kind of means sort I'm of not, boss figure. Oh, does it? I think so. Great. Yeah. I'm not, I have to say I'm now not completely sure, but it sounds quite cool. Yeah, maybe. It's very American. I like the word. I should probably have checked it before saying it. I mean, I've just said it's fine. Yeah. Arts Maven, Digital Guru and all that stuff. Uh, welcome, Lucy. The same offer is always available for you, our lovely podcast listeners. If you want a cheap subscription to the TLS, if you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 you'll get five issues for just five pounds or five dollars this week as our political systems royal and maunder we tend to ignore that the big issue of our time isn't brexit or trump it's the catastrophe of climate change our lead piece this week is by gabriel walker who tell us not to panic yet Speaking of dystopia, last week Margaret Atwood produced her sequel to The Handmaid's Tale amid a flurry of gimmick publishing. Fiction editor Toby Lishtig will examine what's been going on. And one of the messiest couples in the history of literature, and that's up against some pretty stiff competition, is Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. They've just reissued The Great Gatsby and Zelda's Save Me the Waltz, so Joanna Scutts has been reading them and can reveal what they tell us about this literary relationship. Climate change is very much on our minds at the moment, although it gets much less airplay than, dare I say, Brexit, despite the fact that its consequences are global. The titles of three books reviewed for us this week may give you a familiar, sinking feeling. Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? by Bill McKibben, Losing the Earth by Nathaniel Rich, and Down to Earth by Bruno Latour. Gabriel Walker has written a piece for us that is atypical of a lot of climate change coverage in that it offers hope and lessons to learn. She joins us now. Gabriel, hello and thank you for joining us. My pleasure. 
Um, can you explain to us why you say in your piece there is still a lot to play for? I think there's always something to play for. And at the moment, I'm feeling very frustrated with the way that there's beginning to be a bit of a sort of mini movement around people who are saying it's too late. We should effectively give up and just try to adapt to what's already going to happen. And I'm frustrated on that for several reasons. One of them is that I haven't yet seen the evidence that that's the case. I don't think there is a, an, a particular cliff that if we go over it, all is lost. I think it's a sort of sliding scale of the worse that this gets, the more challenges we have to deal with it. But, you know, there's always something left to play for to stop it getting really catastrophic. And I think also, you know, I'm, I'm hearing more of this. I, sometimes I'd almost call it cynical chic. It's, it's kind of sit back and, and, and look like you're very discerning by, by saying, oh, you know, I'm a cynic or I'm a pessimist about this without actually rolling up your sleeves and trying to do something about it. And it feels to me like almost like an excuse to be able to sit on your hands and say, see, I told you so. When what we actually need is all the energy and power of human creativity putting their hands onto this particular pump. Do you see, is there the converse problem, though, that there's lots of people who don't regard it as a crisis, and if they hear that it's not quite a terminal case yet, they'll think, well, it's not as bad as some people are saying, therefore I'll do nothing. You can All of these arguments for climate change, you can point in both directions, it seems to me. Yes, you can. So in a way, it almost gives an excuse you can have a, a situation where there are those who are saying, you know, on, one, on, on the one extreme saying it's gone too far, we can't stop any of it, so we just have to do the best we can. And you've got the ones on the other hand saying all these people are being so apocalyptic and crazy, that proves that this isn't true. You know, apocalypse rarely actually comes, all these crazy people who think the, the rapture is going to come tomorrow. So it enables them to dismiss it as well. Whereas, in fact, the evidence is overwhelming that climate change is real, extremely serious, is already with us, and there's already an awful lot that we have to adapt to. And that if we don't put all our energy into this now, then it will go beyond what any of us can really imagine. And can you talk us through, because you've got these three very different books um, that you've reviewed for us, can you talk us through the different approaches, please? There's the, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you read them. It seems like there's the kind of activism... <laughs> of Bill McKibben and there's a historical perspective from Nathaniel Rich and there's the theory of uh, Bruno Latour. Yes, I think so. Bruno Latour brings a very kind of French philosophical perspective and I say very French philosophical because it, you know, it's, it's, it's very much in that tradition and and to be honest, Bruno's book is not the, it's not the most lucidly written in the, in the or at least not the most approachably written in the world but his ideas are fascinating in it and and one of the biggest things that he talks about is the role of increasing inequality in particular the, the power concentrated in the hands of a very small elite who he says have more or less given up on uh, in dealing with climate change or indeed with sharing resources and just want to grab what they can for themselves and, and, and sort of build walls enough to keep out the outside world and keep out the effects of climate change. Is that, so that's one of the reasons that we're continuing to be in this mess. And does that link to sort of the idea, we've had pieces in, in the paper at the Green New Deal, the idea that economic catastrophe and environmental catastrophe are to a certain extent an opportunity to, 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 to create a new approach to dealing with how we consume, how we behave, because there's lots of people getting a bad deal economically, so they might as well change that at the same time as they, they change things environmentally. Yeah, and I think that's another point that Bill McKibben refers to in his very marvellous book, um, it's, it's uh, you know, by contrast with Bruno Latour's, it's beautifully written. You, you feel all the way through when you're reading it, you feel like, I just want to be sitting next to him, having dinner and talking to him. He's a very engaging and lucid companion. So he's the activist. And, and, and uh, you know, I take issue with him, the issue of, of who or what exactly is, is the enemy. But 
you know, in, in terms of capitalism, he says in the book, there are many on the left who say that, that the idea is to bring down capitalism. Whereas, in fact, you know, go to Sweden, it's a capitalist country where they're doing very well on environmental issues and also on inequality. Yeah. So it's not capitalism per se that's the issue, it's how the capitalism is being done. And the final one is, is Nathaniel Rich um, losing the earth, which I've read, which is very historical. But the, the central depressing tenet of it is almost everything we talk about now we could have talked about in 1979. And there was kind of a moment when it looked like America in particular was going to get its act together, and then it just didn't. Yeah. And so that's losing Earth. And I, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating read, especially because I started on the climate change issue in the 90s, in the early 1990s. And so, you know, I hadn't even registered that, that we knew so much even before that. We really did know we knew all of the problem and an awful lot of the solutions. You know, looking at the reasons why we didn't act in that decade, some of them are scientists being too cautious, some of them are politicians deciding that any apocalyptic rhetoric is probably not going to be right and people are just exaggerating. And some of it in the in the early 90s was the deliberate and very cynical Delilahism campaign, which all three authors, by the way, um, are excoriating in their criticism of, and rightly so. It was an egregious set of acts, which is still continuing in some places, of deliberately trying to confuse people to get away with murder. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I like the way they all write about that. But one of the things I'd say about Nathaniel Rich's book is it's astonishing to remember how little polarisation there was then on this issue. So even George H.W. Bush... Yeah. He said in the in the late 80s, he said, people who think that we can't deal with a greenhouse effect haven't considered the White House effect. And, you know, it's so you read that and you think it's astonishing to think that now we, we've got so polarised, we think it's inevitable and it absolutely isn't. Because it's also, isn't it, it's now it's also become in a way that it wasn't obviously then very politicised, completely politicised. Yeah. Um, yeah. And is it right to say that all three authors, they're advocating collaboration and engagement, but particularly with the people who are traditional or who have been unreceptive to ideas about climate change and what, what to do about it? I don't think any of them are advocating that, actually. I think I'm advocating it. <laughs> OK. <laughs> it sounded very sensible anyway. Well, maybe they should be. <laughs> I mean, Bill McKibben is certainly, I mean, he's a, a brilliant man and a great leader. He, he founded 350.org and, and, and they've been fantastic at galvanizing people and, and, and becoming a very broad church and bringing in engagement from lots of different players. So, I, you know, I do think that he is advocating that. But he he's very much paints the fossil fuel industry as being the enemy. It, it feeds into a narrative, which is that, you know, environmental activists are the um, sort of the good guys and the business is the, are the en enemy. They're the bad guys. They're the ones who caused all this. And I don't think that takes into consideration the fact that they caused it maybe by producing the products, but we all bought them and used them. And then perhaps even more importantly, all of the solutions that we know exist that need to be implemented faster, much faster than they are at the moment, will need to be delivered, in, at least in part, by businesses. I'm interested in, in the populist argument. At what point did it become a populist position that people who are saying climate change is real can somehow be caught as the same elites who were opposing Trump or were opposing Brexit? It strikes me that often you find the movement, the populist side of the movement, leaving aside lobbyists, leaving aside business, there's a kind of populist cynicism which implies that anyone who's trying to suggest the climate change narrative is trying to get one over the working man and woman. And it strikes me that that populism is very similar to that which you see in other political areas, like you do see it in, in Brexit in this country. I'm sure you see it in, in, in sort of Trump. 
in America. And it's sort of climate change has really been characterized as a, as a left wing obsession versus a slightly more robust cynicism that's probably more right wing. When did that happen? And, and is that fixable? Yeah. What a super question. And to make the connection to Brexit as well. I mean, I think some of the obvious reasons are that climate change that was first brought into the public domain by scientists who are, you know, and there is this kind of increasing lack of trust in you know sort of post-truth world where never mind elites and people who tell you what to do and people who know but who say that they know better and who patronize or who there's a whole flavor of that but i think also and and don't let them come in and tell you that you have to be a vegan or you have to stop flying planes or driving your cars and i think that I've been fighting against that narrative for the last few years in particular, because I think that the climate movement has in many cases fallen into the trap of saying, you know, business is the enemy, we need to regulate them, and you need to give up things that you find precious, you need to give up meat, or you need to give up your car, rather than saying we need to work together to re- re- to fix a system. Is it fair to say that um, there's an election in America next year? Is it fair to say that that election is a critical path moment? Because... You could have someone in the White House who, uh, while pro-business, is kind of avowedly not particularly convinced about climate change, and that will have a huge policy impact. Or he could be replaced by someone, presumably from the Democrats, who would be putting climate change at the top of their agenda. Do you think that, and that's four more years in which that can either be dealt, dealt with or not dealt with, do you regard that as a critical moment or is that more politicisation, do you think? I think that there's a lot of critical moments out there and it's a little bit hard to predict which ones might have the effect might have a good effect or a bad effect. I, I have a slightly controversial view about Trump's pulling out of Paris and that certainly the headwinds in Washington at the moment are not helping. But in a way, he almost acted, acted as a galvanizing point by doing that because individual states, cities, regions, mayors, businesses all came out against it. Even the CEO of Goldman Sachs sent a tweet criticizing it on the very day Trump said he was pulling out. So it's not a kind of concerted countrywide, we all agree with this big effort. And in fact, lots of those is a big, we are still in movement um, and, and in cities and states saying, we're still following a path to, to deliver on the climate goals agreed at Paris, regardless of what happens in Washington. And that set up some big fights. For example, DC wanted to relax some laws on emissions from, from vehicles and California was fighting them over it. And the, and the car manufacturers have gone with California, not with Washington, because the businesses are saying, we actually, we know this is the future, and we don't want to waste time having to put money into cars that are not going to sell in the future. Do you think that, I'm just finding, do you think there's enough will? Do you think there's enough mechanisms in place to enable, because your response is, is for people to get together quickly and take decisive steps, and, and humanity in all its complexity hasn't been known to do that. So well, we have, though. We have. That's my point. So I think that, you know, the first point to make is that there's all sorts of areas where that's already happening and those aren't making it out into the current narrative. So there are amazing alliances out there where groups that you wouldn't consider to be natural bedfellows are joining together and pouring energy into making things happen. And so, you know, there's already momentum. And at the same time, we already have all the technologies that we need to solve this. I think the missing part is the political and, and personal will. And the people who are saying we don't need to worry about it, and the people who are saying we don't need to worry about it because it's not happening, and the people who are saying we don't need to worry about it till it's too late, are draining energy away from the narrative and the, the alliances that we need to push this forwards and fix it before it really is too late. And if there's one thing people listening, and when you when you speak to people and when you write pieces like this, that you'd want them to do is it to yeah. make demands of their polit- their politicians wherever they are in the world that this is high on the agenda is there is there action that individually people can take 
it's making a nuisance of yourself about this in schools and hospitals and in businesses saying what you're buying and, and, and why and, and what you're not buying and why not uh, writing to your politician it, even in the middle of all this crazy stuff that's happening in the uk at the moment they get one letter they assume there's a thousand more people thinking it it has much more impact than you realize it's changed the story it's not too late to help save humans <laughs> it is too late to stop climate change stop any climate change it's already with us but it's certainly not too late to to turn this thing around and we need every single piece of human energy we can get in this Okay, that's brilliant. We've now it's official that we're now sending all our listeners out onto the streets <laughs> to cause mischief. Do it. Yeah. We 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 are. <laughs> we're going to do it and spread the word. Thank you very much, Gabriel. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Handmaid's Tale was one of the great works of fiction to come out of the 1980s. Margaret Atwood's tale of dystopian oppression, it vividly portrayed the worst excesses of patriarchal power. It was a work of the imagination, but based on abuses that had all happened at some point somewhere around the world. The novel was loved, sold very well, and there it remained. Until 2017, when it became a TV show on Hulu, a glossy parable of Trump's misogynistic hashtag America. A sequel to the book in our world of monetizable franchises was inevitable. And thus the Testaments arrived, heavily embargoed into a flurry of publishing fanfare. We have a considered review, far longer than in almost any other outlet, whose pressing concerns have been for speed, not depth of response. It's by Dinah Birch, and what she thinks is a very personal novel, despite all the hoopla. Toby Lichtig is our fiction editor and can talk about the review and the surrounding noise. Toby, hello. Hello. Is it worth explaining, because you see it as li- a literary editor, how this novel has come to be published, what, what the plan was and what actually happened? <laughs> yeah, OK, well, I, I can take you through a brief description. Essentially, it was heavily, heavily embargoed, which is not unusual for a big book. Normally, even with heavily embargoed books, the people working at, at this end of things 
do still get the books early so we can get our reviews in when the book's published. But this was denied to us, at least in the UK. It was a different story in the US. We can come to that in a bit. Anyway, Amazon broke the embargo. They released accidentally, apparently, 800 copies that were pre-ordered in the States. And as soon as that embargo was broken, everyone scrambled to get their reviews out. The publishers suddenly realised that they needed to release the copies immediately because people were already talking about it on social media. Uh, Books were released and, I mean, in some outlets, you know, within 14, 15 hours, a review had been produced. So it was all a bit of a mess. So I don't think it's done done the book any disservice in terms of publicity. I actually think the broken embargo has probably helped because it's you know generated another wave of noise about it. But what, what's the embargo for? What do they think? I, I can never understand that. What do they think you're going to do? You're going to get the book, say, two weeks earlier than anyone else. What you're going to start taking pictures of it? And any of you did, <laughs> well, people are still I, it's still not the book, is it? People could still have to wait to buy the book. Okay, I suppose I suppose the point of the embargo generally is so you know people aren't going to give away the ending on social media and all that kind of stuff and it's also because the publication was supposed to coincide with this huge fanfare where margaret app was going to read from it for the first time so these are the first words that anyone would hear from it and it was going to be broadcast in cinemas around the world and in fact that is still happening so i can sort of vaguely understand that and it's all part of the hype the, why literary editors wouldn't be allowed to get hold of the copies in advance i don't know and they were in America. So it turns out, we didn't know this, but as soon as the embargo is listed, American publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, they suddenly released their reviews within about an hour. And it turns out they'd all got their copies early. They'd got their reviews in early. You know, the, the reviewers were allowed time to read the book and write the review, and they were, they were all primed and ready to go. So they published all their reviews immediately because they were, they were there and they were polished and they were done. In, in the UK, and I'm not sure elsewhere in the world, we apparently are not to be trusted, and <laughs> we, it was, that was the reason why all the, all the British papers had to scramble to get reviews quickly done. No one's actually explained to me why these two systems happened. I mean, you know, there's there's a US publisher and a UK publisher, and for whatever reason, there it seems like there's more more trust between the US publishers and the critics. It'd be interesting to know why. There's another dimension, isn't there, as well, because the Amazon. There's all of that amazing hoo-ha leading up to it from the publishers and yep. all of the publicity and our reviews saying the only, it's a bit like Harry Potter. That's the only thing I can compare it with. It was the same kind of level of secrecy. And yep. Amazon also broke that one accidentally. But who cares? There's no repercussion. No, actually, they, the they publishers know. benefit from it, as Toby no, says, because exactly. people chat about it even more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the, the whole, you know, we sign these embargo forms um, weeks and months in advance. But as you, you say, there's no, there's no repercussions. It's a bit like, you know, parliamentary procedure at the moment. Oh, well <laughs> it all done, works Toby. on president. No, anyway, let's not go. Yeah, there. the abandonment of convention. <laughs> Should we talk about that instead yeah. or not? No. Uh, but, I, but does it matter this? Because I went to, into a, a Waterstones and I was talking to the bloke who runs it and I was saying, what do you make of the Atwood? And they were thrilled because ultimately they felt they had a level playing field against Amazon until the Amazon bust it. And so they thought people were coming in, they were excited, they were picking up the book or they were pre-ordering the book. And so should we just feel positive because this is a book by a proper author who writes well uh, and there's excitement about it that does well for booksellers and therefore it does well for people who care about the primacy of books? Oh, yeah. I mean, I com- completely, and I com- I'm completely on board with the, with the reasons why the publicity machine has, has done this. And, you know, I'm fair play to them. As you say, the, the main point is to shift copies and get interest in a fantastic work of fiction. I guess the only negative is the review side of it, the idea that we kind of have to sort of scramble to write these 
slightly ill-considered reviews. But but on the whole, I mean, I can completely understand why why it's been promoted in the way that it is, as long as, long as it doesn't take a focus away from the book itself. But, but the telly I, show's well, already done that. I mean, you know, I'm a cynical person, and there's a part of me that thinks, well, this is... This exists like this because of a TV show, not because of a book. It exists independently of the quality of the book because no one's actually read it at the point at which they're contributing to the hoopla. It's the very opposite of word of mouth, this. You know, when a book succeeds by word of mouth, there is something genuine that courses through it because it means people are reading it, getting excited and handing it to the next person. And that's a kind of beautiful thing. This is the mirror image of this. This is saying everyone has to like this book because the first one was good, it's important socially, and there was a really good TV programme about it. Now, the book might turn out to be brilliant, but the hoopla is unconnected. It is disconnected deliberately from the quality of the writing? Well, yes or no. I mean, it's disconnected from the quality of this particular book, but it is a Margaret Atwood, mm. and this is a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, which is enormously popular for very good reason, and Margaret Atwood is enormously popular for very good reason. So, yes, you're right to a certain extent. It, it will also live or die by its quality. I mean, regardless of the pre- publication hoopla if it turns out to be rubbish or if it had turned out to be rubbish because it's already getting very good reviews then i think we would have been judged as such in the fullness of time so there's an element of hubris to it all but i think in the end readers um will will or would see through all that publicity in the end i don't think it makes too much difference and i think if any book's going to get it the handmaid's tale i think was a fairly good example of word of mouth yeah. that became more and more popular and more and more important and resonant and i mean yes because of the telly but not only the telly i think it was it was well loved anyway uh, that's what i'm saying but in some ways it does a disservice to books this book will never be judged purely on its merits it's impossible to judge it on its merits not least because of the political context around it and the show, like I said, this show became a representative programme of Trump's America. It mm. was absolutely seen as this. And so Margaret Atwood is seen as a prophet new inspired and all of that stuff. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that what it does do, it makes the book, the quality of book as book, less important. I don't know. I, th- I still think it can be judged on its merits. And you could turn that argument on its head and say no book could live up to the hype. And actually, it would be very easy for everyone to say, well, actually, it's been a bit disappointing because nothing, nothing could be quite as good as everyone says it's going to be. I I think when it comes down to it, A, critics, B, readers, we're all the same. We'll judge it depending on how good well, it is. Well, let's talk about Diana Birch doing it. There's a line in this which I find fascinating, and it says this. It's a really interesting review. It's a very good review. It's a long review because we've actually, she's had more time. We've not hurried it out within, you know, 26 minutes of the embargo collapsing. Her book is written to entertain, for that is a novelist's business. That sounds to me like an apology <laughs> for it not being literary enough. That's not like saying this is a thriller that is performing narrative function above anything else. And, you know, we've had many conversations on this podcast about how much I enjoy uh, genre writing and, and the different, you know, is there any point in saying literary fiction? But do you not think that's a funny phrase? The book is written to entertain for that is a novelist's business. That feels like it's protesting too much. I don't know. There is a slight archness in that line, but she's, she's not saying that is Atwood's business. She's saying that is a novelist's business. So she's, she's reminding us that, the, in her opinion, Diana Birch's opinion, the first aim of all novel writers, not just genre writers or thriller writers, whatever you want to call it, is to entertain. Oh, I agree is, with is that. Is to engross us. So I don't think she's just saying that of Atwood. I mean, look, you could... I, I, I don't want to get too 
deeply embedded in the sort of categorization question because I know that we can go around in circles. But I guess the ultimate questions are going to be, is it well written? I haven't read it all, but I've read uh, a chunk of it last night and I think it is well written. Um, there is a kind of a certain flatness of voice, which is something that Dinah Birch refers to. You've got these three first person narrators and they do all sound a bit like Margaret Atwood, which on the level of kind of characterization is probably a flaw. Although Dinah Birch says it is not necessarily a weakness, but that's a slightly odd phrase as well. But it is well written. Is it engrossing completely? Is there psychological depth to the characters? Absolutely. Um, is it thematically powerful? Yes. You know, on a sentence by sentence level, it is not the most mellifluous piece of writing that you will ever read, but that's not necessarily something that we all need in what we can call literary fiction. You know, not everything has to be incredibly ornate. I find her, her writing very direct and very powerful. And so should it, should it be on the book of shortlist, Toby? Well, yes. I think it probably should be. I, you know, I haven't read the whole thing yet, so I'm not quite qualified to say it. I am slightly suspicious of this year's Booker Prize. I found its choices pretty obvious. You know, you've got those big names, Rushdie, Shafak, Winterson made the long list, Deborah Levy. You've got the chair of judges, Peter Florence, who's also the chair of the Hay Festival, who's quite pally by necessity, with a lot of these big name authors who come to his events on an annual basis, in fact, more than annually, because there are about 15 different iterations of hay around the world. And I think it's slightly misguided to get someone whose job is to be an impresario to preside over a judging process like the Booker. And then you've also got the, the agent, uh, sorry, the um, former publisher Liz Calder, who was Atwood's editor, who was Rushdie's editor on the judging panel as well, which just is it, just a bit dubious to me. So, yes, I think from what I've read of it, it probably should be on the book, book a shortlist. However, I'm, I, as I say, I'm slightly suspicious of this year's book. Do you see what I mean general. about the disservice to the book? Because I just think that what's happened... I mean, we could make an argument that, say they just published this book with no hoopla, in five years' time it will have sold two million copies. This is my assertion. I'm not saying this is true. This is what... And so although the spike, which is more important to booksellers and publishers, would be greater the more hoopla they surround it with, the net effect of a book over a long period of time may well be to sell the same and it will be a book that's considered on its own merits and what we've had here is we've had this strange politicized sort of log rolling aspect of the book of process <laughs> you've then got these sort of embargoes busting and flim flam events around the place and what you're slightly losing track of i mean margaret Atwood was in style magazine in the sunday times i, I, I think <laughs> are we not losing sight of a bunch of sentences constructed in someone's brain that's supposed to be something that's worth reading well, I think, I think now that it's out there... Lucy is shaking, um, Lucy's shaking... shaking. Lu I'm letting you speak, to Lucy is shaking, shaking her head, I've got to be I honest think, with you. Look, I think, I think if we lose sight of it, that's to our detriment. I yeah. think we can all individually choose to make of this what we will. Of course there's going to be publicity. You know, how, how would you expect publicity departments in, in publishers yeah. to react? And of course, Stardust Magazine is going to want Margaret Atwood on the cover because that's who everyone's talking but about. Also, but now that it's out there, I think it's up to us as individuals to read it for what it is. Yeah. The book is what it is, it, presumably, and as Toby says, and as Dinah Birch says, it's pretty good because it's Margaret Atwood. Um, how brilliant that 80-year-old Margaret Atwood with her fierce intelligence and strong views is on the cover of Star Magazine, is on the News at 10, is on the Today programme, is yeah. everywhere. Thank God for that. It's, I a, think. Exactly. it's a cultural it's, high point. 
It just, any, it's any sort of high point, to be honest. Yeah. It's, she's and also, also let, politically very astute, I think. Yeah, let, but let, you know, let's remind ourselves that she's not, she's not there because she's a famous environmental campaigner or because she was in a film or because yeah. she did something aside from her writing. Yeah, yeah. The she's there because she the wrote sentences. She's there because she wrote sentences. So yeah. I think, you know, I think I, I feel fairly comfortable about that. Yeah, we're fine with that, Stig. So, no, I'm just, 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 I'm just, I'm just <laughs> testing. Because also, there's an issue around all this, which is just people don't, people just accept stuff. You know, it must be great because it's her. It must be great because there's so much hoopla. And in fact, uh, and I'm I would not... say, I would say there has been. So I've, I've, you know, I've been reading around the reviews a bit. That yes, everyone's basically broadly in agreement that it's a pretty good book and it's definitely a rattling good yarn and all the rest of it. There has been a bit of dissent. So you've got Rob Douglas Fairhurst, who was on the podcast last week in the Times, who who called it brash and camp and not as good as The Handmaid's Tale. Um, there was a piece in the Independent which said it was overly neat. Dinah Birch's review for us is is basically full of praise, but it's also fairly circumspect, and she she does um, she does criticise Atwood for a couple of things. And so I think you know I don't think the the critics so far have completely fallen over backwards yeah. for it for it because of the publicity. And we'll uh, well it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Booker and other prizes. Um, you know, it's not just the Booker that that it could win. I guess you know now is the beginning of the afterlife of its afterlife, yeah. and we shall see how that. And plays how out. nice that we're having a. I mean, we'd, we'd have one anyway because it's the TLS, but how nice that, uh, that a debate about a proper book is being given and weight by lots of people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, I wasn't, I'm not being ugly, man. I was <laughs> just, just checking, I was just, just <laughs> testing the ground, testing the ground. You're, like, you're, like, you're, you're just doing your job. And Do it's you? Good, good news story all around. Well done. All right, Toby Lichty, thank you very much indeed. Jonna Scutz this week tells the quintessential tale of the Jazz Age, the story of the Fitzgerald, starring a brilliant, self-destructive golden boy tethered to a golden girl whose glamour eventually dulled into madness. But is it true? What about the account that has Zelda overshadowed, plundered and abandoned by her husband? Are you, in the end, Team Scott or Team Zelda? And more importantly, what do we get from their definitive works, Gatsby and Save Me the Waltz? Well, Joanna Skets has been reading them and joins Lucy and me now. Joanna, hello. Hello. Great so, to be here. It's good to talk about this because uh, it, it's, it, it's interesting. Let's start with, or should we start with the pervasiveness of the myth of the Fitzgerald marriage? What, what, what do people want to believe about this? Well, I think that's actually changed a little in recent years. For a very long time, it was sort of the the story of Zelda and Scott was very much controlled by Scott and his, you know, the way that he wrote about Zelda as the quintessential flapper. He kind of named her as this icon of the time of the era. And she sort of lived up to that as far as she could in the 20s. And she was the model for a lot of the characters, the women in his novels. And she kind of was absorbed in that narrative for a long time. And then more recently, there's been a lot of interest in her side of the story. Um, There were several novels published even in the last five years that have kind of attempted to dig into her history and her hospitalization, the way that she was treated not just by Scott, but by the whole sort of male medical establishment and trying to sort of reclaim her a little bit as an artist, as a kind of perhaps not quite as a feminist in her own (laughs) um, politics or in her own approach, but certainly as a um, heroine, a sort of thwarted heroine in in her own right as an artist. There's a lovely phrase you use, which is the the messy intertextuality of the marriage. Uh, uh, Mm. Is it clear who was borrowing what 
and from whom? I mean, do they both shape each other's work? Absolutely. Well, Zelda is repeatedly on record as as accusing Scott of kind of borrowing her phrases, borrowing pieces from her diary. She famously published a review of his novel, um, Tender is the Night, and in which she has this line uh, that plagiarism begins at home. Was that a published review? Did someone say, I know what I'll do. I'll commission Zelda Fitzgerald to review this. I believe it was published under a pseudonym, um, but it was a very transparent pseudonym. It's kind of a, the whole thing is a little bit of an in-joke. But the other sort of end of this is that she was also published as a a short story writer and a nonfiction writer with pieces that were published under his name because his name was so famous and they could get more money that way. So there's this kind of very like strange overlapping of talent and credit in the marriage. And I suppose it's to do with her own work and her ambitions because also because Joyce borrowed stuff from Nori, borrowed what she said and sort of arguably great chunks of her diary, but she didn't give us stuff I think never you know never made any claims to she didn't have the aspiration like Zelda not did. wasn't interested in it at all whereas Zelda did you feel that Zelda was trying to claim a place and not being heard well it's tricky because Zelda also clearly recognized that their lifestyle was supported by Scott and she knew that they needed money and she wanted to kind of keep his stature you know his for his stature to be as high as it was, was beneficial to them both. Um, so I'm not. So it's unclear kind of how much she was trying to establish herself in a sort of serious way, or whether it's really these sort of bursts of frustration that you kind of see these sort of jabs at him when she's like, "That's mine, that's mine," but not really seriously sort of laying claim to her work. And she would have presumably recognised the time. I mean, hopefully now we can look at it in 2019 and, and feel that everyone's voices are equal. But for her in, you know, 100 years almost ago, she'd have felt there's no way my voice is going to be treated equally anyway. The, the system's not set up for that. Absolutely. There is no way she would ever have risen out of Mrs. Fitzgerald in her own lifetime. She was just, she was his wife. He was famous and her work would always be tethered to his in a way that his wasn't to hers. And so it's, I think that she was very aware of that, that even if she had tried to lay claim to her own work, it's it's unclear how far she would have been sort of allowed by the publishing establishment, by the this literary establishment that was sort of set up to raise up and sustain a man like Scott. Well, let's talk about this book then, because Save Me the Waltz, I've heard of it but never read it, uh, which I feel sad about now um that i've read your piece what's it like i mean how, i mean is it possible objectively as a critic joanna to to judge it what do you make of it it's definitely strange <laughs> um there is sort of a, a it was written quickly and it was written in this kind of um and, and it was as i mentioned in the piece very poorly edited it sort of seems to have been kind of thrown out into the world by scott's publisher and scott's editor um in a fairly sort of half-hearted way. It didn't really sell. And so it was this kind of, they didn't put much behind it. You you sort of do get the sense that you can see the novel it perhaps could have been if a really serious hands-on editor had, had taken it in. But it's very, it has so much life. It's a really uncomfortable book at, in parts. Some of the most powerful places 
are her, the way that um, that she writes about dancing because it follows Zelda's life story to an extent and one of the most important parts of the novel and sort of parts of her life was her effort when she was in her late 20s to seriously study and become a ballet dancer um, and ideally a, an actual professional dancer. And the way that she writes about this stuffy little dance studio in Paris and the kind of the 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 rivalries with the other girls and the kind of but the physical nature of that space and how sort of overcrowded and stinking it is and how women's bodies sort of feel when they're up close and they're sweating and they're kind of making uh trying to work on this dance you know it's a really visceral kind of um description so in that that's one of the most sort of powerful moments um and the, the the dance that she's dealing with, it's you say it kind of mirrored her own career to a certain extent because the the figure in the novel has to give up, doesn't she? And Zelda also had to give up, but the figure in the novel has to give up for a fairly straightforward physical reason, whereas she had to give up because she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, which, as you say, was much more, much less straightforward and more frightening and less easy to deal with. Um, it's not quite even as clean a comparison as that because it's still sort of unclear what she um what Zelda herself was thinking and feeling but she seems to have turned down this opportunity so she Alabama her alter ego in the novel gets the offer a, the similar offer to dance in in Naples as a principal in this ballet company mm-hmm. and Zelda got that same offer but um, but Zelda turns it down where she has Alabama take it up. Mm. But Alabama, as you say, is, is physically injured. She gets uh, she injures her foot and then gets blood poisoning, all of which is described in this very sort of physical, um, pretty grotesque way. But it's something that is a cleaner break, almost literally. Um, you know, she, she is put out of action by an injury to the foot, whereas Zelda was put out of action by some combination of fear and then this incipient mental illness, which was um, which was starting to become something that would eventually take over her life. There's a terribly sad line in this, which is mind-boggling, really. Zelda struggled to keep writing and painting within the limits set by her doctors and her husband, who feared her creativity was overstimulating, which implies that given different treatment, given sensitive, thoughtful treatment, given... A, mod, a more modern approach to, say, mental illness and indeed to marriage, there is the prospect of a talent being nurtured that could have produced all sorts of things, but it was placed within bonds such that that was never an option. Yeah, part of the treatment was there's a lot of concern about overstimulation, sort of mental, the idea that mental activity over um, sort of is dangerous, um, can sort of bring on the more severe symptoms She's given a lot of morphine in a lot of these institutions. There's a, a lot of interest in kind of keeping patients very calm. And it was believed, certainly, that her writing was a stimulus, that the dancing and the painting, that all of these things were were stimuli. She did manage to keep writing in some, in at different times and in different places. She managed to write a play after having been told by Scott that she was not allowed to continue to work on a second novel. So she was doing everything she could, it seems, to have to keep producing in some creative way. But yes, there was certainly 
strict rules about that. Well, it's, it's an amazing uh, story, and uh, uh, it's it's fascinating. I'm going to go and read this book. Uh, I think Save Me the Waltz. Uh, Joanna Skitz, thank you very much indeed. Are you going to read? I'm going to read it. I think. Have you read Gatsby? Yes. And yes, I love not, Gatsby. Not I mean, for a while, not for a while. Uh, he wanted to call it Tramalchio in West Egg, and she convinced him not to. I think she was probably right. So, I, w- I was you thinking imagine if it's as called well. Tramalchio in, in, in West Egg. It did get there. Oh, one got of there the the eggs. End, yeah. It would have got there in the end, but maybe a bit more. Gatsby is a lot. The Great Gatsby. Yeah. It sounds inevitable now, like, it all does. The, like all great titles. But I was wondering also, you know, the, the relationship between T.S. Eliot and his first wife, and yeah. also Ezra Pound in a way. But but it's closer between uh, Elliot and his first wife because she he did sort of work with her. They didn't work in isolation. I'm not trying to say you know she wrote the Wasteland, she wrote the Great Gatsby. Yeah. Clearly they didn't. But also um, Joanna says in her piece she says she's not a co-author, but she was definitely much more than his muse. It's it's a complicated it is line because there's a lot to do with editing and as and you know as you say suggestions and well we all want and this is true of collaboration generally is true of why we don't want Shakespeare to be collaborating with other playwrights. We want there to be, for every piece of great work, a genius sitting isolated but it's and, just, and we know that's rubbish. It's yeah, like Coleridge. We, I was talking about it with someone the other day in the Kubla Khan, you know, and the person from Porlock. Me and man from Porlock on the door, yeah. yeah. But that was rubbish. We know that that was rubbish as well. That was yeah. all myth-making. He did loads of drafts of it. Yeah, it's, it's romantic a, fantasy. But, yeah. we, but we still have it because someone, you, you don't want to believe... Not you. One doesn't want to believe that things are as messy as they are, perhaps. But but then that's it's almost like what we we're talking about with the with the climate change. Usually, collaborating with people and getting other people's opinion leads to a better, richer thing. That's why we have both of us. Both that's why of there's us, two of us, yes, and not just me. I mean, not just you, and not just anyone <laughs> on their road. That's all we've got time for. We'll stop chuntering on messily now. Our thanks go to Toby Lishtig, to Gabriel Walker and to Joanna Scutts. My thanks go to Lucy Dallas. Thank, Thank you, you Lucy. for having me. Always good fun. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS and supporting all our work. Next week we consider the Middle East, the Bible, the history of modern celebrity. I think we might also be considering some Cornish seafaring fishing. Cornish fishermen and the social ramifications thereof. The obvious. That kind of thing. The obvious. But there'll be plenty to talk about. Thea may even be back too. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.